Okay, um, we're going to continue this morning uh, with our uh, study of the book of Ephesians. We're, we're um, <clears throat> plugging away here through Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 13 today if you want to turn there. While you're flipping there, uh, last week we talked about the covenant of circumcision. Um, someone suggested I should have retitled it the seven sacred cows. But um, <laughs> not a bad idea. Uh, but uh, we were we were looking at Ephesians uh, two eleven and twelve last week about uh, Paul's reference to the Gentiles as those who were formerly known as as the circumcision by the Jews who were who were known as, as uh, I'm sorry they were known as the uncircumcision by the Jews by those uh, the Jews were known as the circumcision. And uh, we noticed how Paul was uh, very intentional in describing how those fleshly distinctions uh, were fulfilled in, in Christ and thus they are done away with in the flesh. In other words, the circumcision of the flesh uh, by a flint knife, which once signified the people in relationship with God, has given way to the circumcision of the soul by the cross, by which all people, Jew and Gentile, uh, now have relationship with God through Christ. And I looked at this verse in Colossians 2.11 where he talks, where he says, In Him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by the putting off of the body of the flesh uh, by the circumcision of Christ. Another one that I just happened to be reading this week was uh, in Philippians 3.3 where he says, For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. It's a very similar thing. Uh, and and we, we spent a lot of time, and it's kind of tempting to, to, to talk about it again because it's so uh, incredibly predominant in the church today, in my opinion, that, uh, that uh, it's, it's possible, it's not only possible, it's almost inevitable that uh, we come out of the Old Covenant, but the Old Covenant does not come out of us. That's, that's necessarily the case um, until the Spirit of God teaches you the New Covenant. You don't just come out of the Old Covenant and then just snap your fingers and see everything according to New Covenant reality. Uh, you come out of the Old Covenant into the reality of New Covenant relatedness to God, but you, you in every way hold on to Old Covenant understanding of relatedness to God uh, because that's what the flesh understands. And, and so... Um, I, I thought about just mentioning this too. The, the, there's no person in the world, not, not anybody, not me nor anyone, that can teach you the New Covenant. The person can read you the New Testament. Uh, you can memorize the New Testament and still have no understanding whatsoever about the New Covenant. Because the New Covenant is a relationship with God and Christ and it's not written on pages, it's written on the human heart by the Spirit of God, by the finger of God, Paul says in 2 Corinthians. Words on a page can describe it. That's what the New Testament is. The New Testament is the written description, the infallible written description of the New Covenant. But in order for you to walk in the reality of the New Covenant, you have to come to know it in the only place it can be written. So what I'm trying to say is that it's a relationship. It's a relationship with God wherein you have died and your life is hidden with, your life is joined to and hidden with Christ in God. 
How in the world is a book going to teach that to your soul? Can you hear what I'm saying? A book can only describe that to your mind. Only the Spirit of God can make it real. The Spirit of God does uh, and can, can and does make that real to your soul as you read the book that describes it if you have a heart to know Him. But what I'm trying to say is that many people read the book and never come to any Spirit-given understanding of that relationship, that new covenant. That's a fact. Uh, so, uh, so we spent we spent the latter half of last week's message talking about a few of the uh, innumerable ways, and and I we could just for fun maybe one day we, we will, but we could just go down a list. I just the first seven that came to my mind I wrote down on the, in my notes last week, but I did seven of the ways that we still try to relate to God in an old covenant mindset which is really what we're doing is we're trying to relate to God in a relationship that He no longer has with humans. If that makes sense. God no longer is relating to human beings according to the Old Covenant. Okay, It's just not the nature of the relationship that He has with any person. He doesn't just wink at us when we try to relate to Him according to an Old Covenant relationship. Okay, He doesn't... He just doesn't acknowledge it. It's not, it doesn't exist to him, although it does exist in the vanity of our own imaginations and the vanity of our own unrenewed minds. It doesn't exist to him. And so that being the case, it, it very, very much behooves us to, to learn the reality of the relationship that he does have with us, the new covenant. And that covenant is a relationship with God in Christ that is taught by the Spirit. The Spirit who Second Corinthians, or First Corinthians 2 says knows the deep things of God and reveals them unto us. So there's this goofy thing that I've heard in the body of Christ, speaking of um, sacred cows. Uh, I think it, the, name of, the formal name of it is, is um, dual covenant teaching where God relates to Christians according to the covenant of the, the new covenant and He still relates to Jews according, according to the old covenant. That is, that is so unbelievably silly uh, it almost doesn't warrant a response, but uh, God sent His Son, and in so doing, He took away the first to establish the second. In bringing in the new, that's a quote from Hebrews, in bringing in the new, He made the old obsolete. That's another quote from Hebrews. So, God has one relationship with mankind, and that relationship is Christ Jesus. You relate to God in Christ. Okay? Every, that's, there's many that come into that relationship, but it's one relationship, and it is the relationship of Jesus Christ. We come to the Son's relationship with His Father, and the Spirit within us cries out, Abba, Father. We mentioned that last week. And so unless the Spirit of God is showing us Christ's relationship with His Father as our relationship, then we're doing this thing that Paul calls vain imagination. We're imagining, we're, we're, we're coming up with how God, what God wants from us, how God thinks of us, what God is requiring of us. And it's, it, it, it's, it's enough to make you live in prison, but it's not true. It's not reality. God is trying to show you Christ as your relationship with the Father. The question is, are you and I letting Him show us that relationship? 
Christ is, as we read a couple of verses last week, and some of this is, is review, but we read last week, Christ is the covenant that God gave to us. We read from Isaiah, two places where God says to Christ, to his son, I will appoint you as a covenant to the people. I will appoint you as an everlasting covenant. What does that mean? That means that we come to live in Christ and thereby have Christ's relationship with his Father. Everything other than Jesus' relationship with his Father is a vain imagination. I don't care how many dreams and visions you have to support it. I don't care how many books you've read or wrote. The, the nature of the relationship you have with God is Christ. And there, therefore, Christ must be revealed to you as that relationship. Okay, so uh, that was a bit of a rabbit trail. But Paul here today, uh, well... First, he mentions that what was formerly known as uncircumcision, the ones who were strangers to the covenant, who were without hope, who were without God in the world, he says, and and I think it's verse 12, these ones have been reconciled to what was called circumcision through the cross. And and more than that, bigger than that, both groups, uh, Jew and Gentile, uncircumcision and circumcision, have been reconciled to God through the cross. And we're going to look at both of those realities. But I want, I want you, before we even read the verse here, to understand that we have two, two real reconciliations going on here. We have, first, we have a reconciliation of man with man uh, through bearing Christ's death and living by his life. And then we have a reconciliation of man with God through bearing Christ's death and, and living by his life. So we'll, we'll read the verses here. We're going to look at a, a bunch of verses today. Um, it's a kind of a big chunk compared to what we usually do, but it's all one thought, so I, I didn't really know, I didn't think I'd break it up at all. Um, and, it, and it should be kind of familiar because we talked about it back uh, in January, I think, when we talked about peace. Um, when Paul says grace and peace to you, I, I spent a couple weeks on grace and then maybe one or two on peace, uh, but I, was, I, I jumped ahead and, and, and spoke from Ephesians 2 on peace. So I'm going to read Ephesians 2, 13. To 13 through, uh, through 18 here. But now in Christ Jesus. Now, see, that's just... Um, but now in Christ Jesus. That is always what... I, I'm, I'm stopping here just for a second. That is always what God is trying to show you. He is always trying to show you what is now in Christ Jesus. He's not trying to show you what is future. He's really not. He's trying to show you what is now. Because... Well, frankly, because everything is now. But, but now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. He himself is our peace. Who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity. That is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two thus making peace. And that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. If enmity is a strange word to you, it just means hostility or, or uh, uh, what's another word? Uh, hate, yeah, hatred or whatever. Yeah, enmity, hostility, whatever. He came and preached peace to you who were far off and to those who were near, for through him... We both have access by one Spirit to the Father. That last verse there summarizes the first four or five verses. Through Him we both have access by one Spirit to the Father. There you have the reconciliation of man with man, 
by coming to one spirit. And you have the reconciliation of man with God by coming to that one spirit. So uh, I wanted to, before I jumped into that verse, I wanted to just say this kind of sweeping statement. And that, that is that, uh, th- this may sound like an exaggeration, but I, I really believe it to be true. There is really nothing of spiritual reality in Christ that we can understand without coming first to, to some spirit-given recognition of our death with Christ. This verse, for instance, it makes absolutely zero spiritual sense without realizing that all men, Jew and Gentile, were first brought into the death of the Lord Jesus. Romans 6, we were baptized into his death. We, were, we died with him, Colossians 2, whatever way you want to say that. Galatians 2, we were crucified with Christ. That is the paramount uh, first reality in terms of spiritual understanding. There is an order to spiritual understanding. Uh, I'm not saying that there, there are levels of, or ranks of spiritual achievement. That doesn't make sense at all. But there is an order to spiritual comprehension. It's an order, you could say it this way, it's an order to which God can really instruct uh, or make sense out of spiritual reality to the soul. Um, and, and, and it's an order that you see time and time again in Scripture. You see it in the story of Noah. You see it in the Exodus out of Egypt. You see it in the tabernacle of Moses. You see it in the temple of Solomon. You see it in the kingdom of David. It's an order. It's death first, then resurrection. Death, burial, and resurrection. Uh, unless we understand that we have died with Him, we have been judged together, that all flesh is put away, that flesh has been circumcised, we cannot understand what is beyond that death. We cannot understand uh, resurrection resurrection life and all that is part of resurrection life I don't know a better way to say it than that the, the verses that we that we just read they have to do with a reconciliation with man and with God but the key element the foundational reality that makes sense out of all of it is that all of the flesh has has died with Christ and been put away put away through the body of Jesus Jesus says in John 12 when I am lifted up I will draw all men to myself and that was speaking of his death, it says in the next verse. Second Corinthians 5, when one died, all died. The cross was Adam's end. I know we've talked about that, but, but unless, that becomes, unless that becomes a matter of spiritual reality in your soul, uh, then, then ev- that, that every, everything of flesh collided with the cross and died. It was the end of the first man. Uh, if, that doesn't, if that doesn't exist as a, as a spiritual fact in your heart, then every, everything else that comes out of new life in Christ doesn't make sense. See, everything that comes out of, of, of resurrection depends on that end. Forgiveness, for instance. There's no such thing as forgiveness apart from that death. It doesn't make sense. L- life. See, until you see that one life came to an end, you're going to read the word life in the New Testament and you're going to think it's talking about you living for God when it's talking about Christ living in you. It's, the whole thing's messed up if you don't see that end. Love. Again, it's going to be something you're trying to discipline yourself to do rather than something that He is that works in you. Covenant. Church. You're, you're actually going to think that church is a building where people come together and believe things. When church is the life of the Son of God living in a people. I mean, the whole th- if you don't see flesh ended in the cross, then every New Testament term or concept is going to be you instead of Christ. 
because you haven't seen righteousness. Again, it's going to be what you do or don't do to make God happy when righteousness is a person who was formed in your soul. So everything of understanding comes out of death. If you can hear to that, that's what I'm trying to say. Everything of spiritual comprehension comes out of first seeing what ended before we can comprehend what began. Okay? So, and like every other verse in the New Testament, these six verses or whatever we just read are, are totally meaningless uh, without, without uh, understanding that they are the direct consequence of understanding the death of all mankind in the body of Jesus Christ. If you look at these verses, you have to notice how it is that Jew and Gentile are, are reconciled. How did God do it? You know, did, how did God make Jew and Gentile one? Did he, did he lobby for equal human rights? You know, now, that's how we try to make unity in the flesh. Did he point out all the natural and biological similarities between the two groups? You know, did he, did he, did he uh, start some kind of a unity committee? That's what we try to do. We try to get churches together and people together and try to make a unity in the flesh. How did God bring Jew and Gentile together? Death. He put them both to death in the body of Jesus Christ. Read the, read the verse. Through the blood of Jesus Christ, through the death of His Son, through the body of His Son. In other words, He brought b- both of them to an end in the flesh and raised up Christ as the life of all who will live. If anyone hears my voice, you know, that's what Jesus says. He ended the divisions and the distinctions in the flesh by putting away the flesh and then becoming the life of every soul that would live thus establishing peace, thus destroying the enmity. You see, he didn't reconcile flesh, he destroyed flesh, destroyed flesh and reconciled souls in his son. Does that make sense? If you, if you really think about it, and I know this, this might offend maybe someone, but flesh cannot really ever truly be reconciled. It can't really. Don't take this as an excuse to, to be mad or grumpy with people. You can be nice, you can be kind, but, but you can't know true union or complete reconciliation in the flesh because in the flesh you have separate lives and self-seeking wills. It's just a fact. Flesh can, can find things in common and it can relate based upon those things. It can share time and space and, and football games and cheesecake or whatever, but as long as we seek to relate in the flesh, unity is an illusion. It really is. There may be the appearance of unity in a, in a group of people for a time, but it's, it's really only a temporary situation that exists because of convenience to individuals. And as soon as it's no longer convenient or mutually beneficial for individuals to come together, they split apart. Showing that they were never really one, not really one in the first place. And that's true of friendships. That's true of churches. That's true of marriages. That's true of social groups. People act surprised, for instance, that the divorce rate is, is the same in the body of Christ as it is in the unbelieving world. But if we're relating to one another in the flesh, how could you expect anything else? So unity in the flesh is only as real and important as it is beneficial to the individuals that are coming together in the flesh. That's how long it lasts. And I'm, I'm sorry if I'm stepping on toes. It's just, it's not a true oneness because there's two lives each seeking their own will. Do you see what I'm saying? You can have like a symbiotic relationship, but you can't really have unity. 
There's a picture of unity in marriage. There's a picture of unity in things that God establishes in Old Covenant Israel. We'll look at that in a second. But, but true unity is the sharing of one life. It's, 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 uh, it's not what flesh can do because flesh comes together for personal individual gain. And, and so, you know, in, in Old Covenant Israel, God gave a type and shadow of true unity in the natural through Old Covenant Israel. They weren't really one in Him, you know, like we have come to be one in Him by being one in spirit. First uh, Corinthians 6.17, those who have joined themselves to the Lord have become one spirit. That wasn't true of Old Covenant Israel, but God demonstrated oneness through them by having them all be of the same seed, the seed of Abraham, and all be of the same covenant, the covenant of circumcision, and all live in the same land, the land of Israel, and all be of the same law, and relating to God in the, in the same high priest, and all of that. That was, you know, that really didn't bring them into a oneness of sharing life, the life of Christ, but it was a picture of it. And they were commanded not to intermarry and intermingle with those outside of that covenant relationship with God. They were commanded in the law to keep themselves separate from the nations who, who were called the Gentiles. And so, and so there was enmity, there was hostility, there was antagonism, there's another word, between Jew and Gentile uh, throughout the years of the Old Covenant. And those of you who watch the news know that that antagonism still exists today <laughs> uh, for those who have not had the veil removed in the person of Christ. So, so here is this enmity, here is this uh, hostility. What, how did God destroy the enmity that existed in the flesh between Jew and Gentile, or between you and your mother-in-law? Uh, how did God uh, offer that <clears throat> reconciliation in the flesh? How did he do it? He offered it by offering an end to the flesh. You see, and a new life altogether. He offers them a cross, an end of themselves, and the newness of Christ's life. See, and, and so, so what he ends up offering is what Paul goes on to describe in the scripture. Romans 12, 4 through 5. For as, even as we have uh, many members in one body, but all members do not have the same function, so we, the many, are one body in Christ, and each one members of one another. That's not a theology to Paul, that is a reality of one resurrected corporate body. 1 Corinthians uh, 12.13 For also by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether bond or free, even all were made to drink of one Spirit. Same thing. One Spirit, one life, one body, Christ all and in all. This is how God abolishes the enmity. People in the body of Christ in the world are trying to create peace in the flesh. Can you see how we try to do that? We try to create peace where there can be no peace. There is no peace in the flesh. I don't care how many things we find in common. You know, there's a lot of things in common with me and a monkey too. But there's not true unity until there is unity of life. So, and I'm, and I'm not, well, I am saying we can cancel all the ecumenical councils because there is no such thing as unity of religion. Unity is a person in whom we come to live, in whom we come to abide and who is formed in us, and becomes becomes unity in us when the life that he is is revealed in us. You see? Then we relate to one another, not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Okay. Uh, 
Okay, so this is how God abolishes enmity. This is what it says, going back to our verse. For he himself is our peace, okay, who has made the both one and broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. The word peace is so important, but it's really, I think it's really misunderstood. It's true that Scripture calls Jesus the Prince of Peace, but see, just like everything else, we want to make him the Prince of whatever peace is most important to us. And that's almost always peace in the flesh, and it's peace, peace in the natural. You know, we want to bring, uh, we want to make Jesus the peace of our relationships, or the peace uh, between nations, peace, peace where there is war, peace, you know, peace with relatives or whatever. But that's, I feel like I'm doing another series on the seven uh, sacred cows here, but that's really not the kind of peace or the realm in which uh, Christ offers peace. He was very clear about that. For instance, in Luke 12:51, Do you suppose that I came to give peace on earth? I tell you, not at all. Yeah, that's pretty... Uh, and then what, well, He could make it more clear because the next part is but rather division. <laughs> For from now on, five and one house will be divided. Three against two, two against three. Father will be divided against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother-in-law. He's just going, you know, all the relationships he can think of, you know. Mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. I tell you, not at all, but rather division. See... Peace isn't a thing that Christ gives you in the flesh. Peace is something He is if you will live in Him. It will be peace. He will be peace with those who share His life. And that goes for man and that goes for God. Can you see that? By destroying the flesh through the cross and filling your soul with His life, peace is actually many made to dwell in one. This isn't New Age weird stuff here. This isn't like a, you're, a, you know, you're a drop in the bucket of nothingness. You're an individual soul, but you have one, you have one life, and that is Christ being formed in that soul. And so that is peace. Peace becomes Him. He Himself is our peace. The one as the life of the many, and that's that's why you see in verse 14 when it says He Himself is our peace. It doesn't say He Himself will give you peace. It doesn't say he himself will make you peaceful. He doesn't say stuff like that. He himself will give you a peaceful, easy feeling. By dying to the flesh and, and becoming alive to God in Christ, he himself is reconciliation with each other. Okay? How are you going to have enmity if we are members of the same body? How, how could division and hostility remain if we are both made to drink of one spirit? You see, he's our peace. That's why Paul deals with the Corinthians the way he does. He says, I can tell you're carnal because you're divided. And then, and then he says, is Christ divided? You see, he understands that there is just one life. So all divisions exist in the, in the, uh, in the unrenewed mind. That sees contrary to God. And so not only is Christ the, the, uh, the peace that we have one with another, that's almost a fringe benefit compared to the reality that he is also our peace with God in the same way. Because we have died and our life is joined to Christ, hidden with Christ in God. So we can live forever in the Father, joined to the Son. Do you, do you, do you, 
Does that strike you with any force? I hope it does. That is, that is the most amazing picture of reconciliation that you could have. Joined to Christ, sharing one life, living in the Father. Is that your understanding of reconciliation? It was Jesus's, John 17, 21. Father, I pray that they will all be one, even as you are in me, Father, and I in you, that they may also be one in us. One life. That's, that's, that was Jesus' understanding of reconciliation. I, 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 you know, I don't think you could get more reconciled than you are in me, I am in them, and whatever, they are in us. You know, but I think that a lot, of, a lot of us in the body of Christ have, this, have, have a very different picture of reconciliation with God. You know, it's almost like we picture God as, you know... Um, this big mad guy with a gigantic hammer and that hammer is about to fall on us and just before the hammer reaches us Jesus kind of bumps the hammer so that it slides over and hits him and then God looks down and says I missed <laughs> but since I got my anger out on Jesus I guess your congratulations you're reconciled to me you know and 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 it's it's you know it's not anything remotely like that but that's sort of and we wouldn't say it like that either but our heart kind of feels it like that you know, Jesus kind of took the blow so I don't have to. Uh, it's almost like some external transaction that we hope is binding because we, we sure know we don't deserve it. And, and when we read of Jesus as the great intercessor, the great mediator, we, we picture him kind of standing between us and that hammer, kind of reminding God uh, that the hammer already fell on him. And God reluctantly kind of puts the hammer aside because Christ intercedes on our behalf. Well, it's absolutely nothing like that. That is just an imagination of the natural mind. Intercession is not really... Intercession is really not something, if you can hear what I'm saying here, it's not really something Jesus is doing for us. He's not holding back God's wrath. He's not praying for us, despite what you might have heard. Uh, Why would he need to pray for you after giving you his death, burial, and resurrection? What more would be added onto that? Uh, I, I don't know if you've heard that taught. I've heard it taught a bunch of times in the body of Christ that Jesus is called the great intercessor because he's praying for the church. But see, or because he holds back the wrath of God or whatever. But I, I'm sorry, that just makes nonsense out of the finished work of the cross. Christ is the intercessor, the mediator, because of what he has done and because of what he forever will be. He is the intercessor because he came out from God, gathered up a people in himself, brought them into his death, death, was raised from the dead, and brought those who would by faith accept his death as their own back to where he was before. He brought a people in himself, out of death, back to his eternal abode, his eternal resting place in the Father. He's the mediator in that he has prepared a place for us in the Father by the body of his, of his cross, through, through his death. He's the intercessor in that he will forever be the one in whom we have died and with whom we are hidden in God. And as verse 18 says, for through him, this is how he's a mediator, this is how he's an intercessor, for through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. I hope that the Spirit of God is able to turn in our hearts uh, some of the, you know, some of the tapes you have heard play a bunch of times. You are fully reconciled to the Father by sharing the life of His Son. 
He's not still dealing with you according to something he has already put away. I hope that, that go, that's why there is now no condemnation in Christ Jesus. The hammer did fall, but it fell on you in Christ. So, anyway, the, the, um, the cross destroys the enmity by reconciling us in one spirit to the Father. Well, again, what was the enmity that Jew had with Gentile? It was the flesh. It was the, it was the division required by the law, circumcision versus uncircumcision, seed of Abraham versus non-seed of Abraham, and beyond all that, all enmity between man is in the flesh, and it cannot truly be reconciled. How do you get rid of the enmity? You destroy the flesh. You put Adam to death, and you break down the middle wall of partition. That's what Ephesians 2, 13-18 is talking about. Well, what was the enmity between man and God? It's the same thing. It was the flesh, the Adamic man, the nature of sin working in the natural man that was contrary to righteousness. Romans 6 is entirely about this. And it starts off, Romans 6 was, Do you not know that all of you who have been joined to Christ were first baptized into his death? There's the way in. So by crucifying the flesh in the person of Jesus Christ and by faith coming to live in and by Christ, we're joined to him. We're brought into the Father, which is where you now are whether faith has seen it or not. You are, Colossians 3 doesn't give you a choice. It says, you know, it says, you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That is true of you this second whether or not you have the eyes to see it yet or not. How did God destroy the enmity with man? The church all yells, He forgave us. Wrong. Well, it's true if you understand that forgiveness is only possible because of death. But see, we want to think that we were forgiven and we're still living for God. That's why I say wrong. We think that God killed Jesus so that we could still live for God. That's not right. God didn't pardon our iniquity except by crucifying Christ. You've heard me say this before, but it's not, I have been crucified with Christ, nevertheless I'm back. I have been crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. See, there's no forgiveness without the removal of the cause. So we are forgiven, yes, but we are forgiven because we were baptized into his death, because the enmity was destroyed, because we were crucified with him. And if we don't see that, then we're going to think of ourselves as a bunch of forgiven Adamites running around trying to figure out what God wants us to do. Rather than having the person of his will, the person of righteousness, the person of life, the person of love formed in our soul. You see what a horrible tragedy it is to not understand our death with him. To not understand that the flesh is put away, that the enmity is destroyed between us and God and us and us through death. Okay, the last thing I just want to make mention of here is, uh, is this, uh, this concept here that Paul introduces here called one new man. He says that he made of us, made of the two, one new man in him. One new man. This is uh, something of, of God's view uh, of what he's accomplished in the resurrection of Christ. It, it's, it's the heart of God. It's the view of God. Um, Salvation hasn't 
in the mind of the Lord, salvation really hasn't accomplished a bunch of saved sinners. It's true that many, many, many people from tribes and tongues find salvation in Him. But if you can hear what I'm saying here, God's view of the new creation isn't a, just a bunch of escapees from hell. You know, It's not really a bunch of anything. God's view of salvation is one new man. It's a head and a body, both sharing the life of the head, redeemed, raised up out of death, seated in, the, in him in the heavenly places. God's view of, of our salvation is one new man. That may not be our view yet, but, but it, it will be our view it, it, because we are coming to share his view in all things through the renewing of the mind. There's, there's a huge emphasis in the body of Christ on the believer's personal relationship with God. And I'd just like to have you think about that for a minute. It's, obviously, it's not wrong to think of you having a personal relationship with God. Indeed, it is, very, it is very personal. It's the life of the Son of God filling your personal soul. And yet, somewhere in our emphasis, though, on, on the personal relationship with God, I think that sometimes we fail to realize that we are, in actuality, a corporate, corporately one new man. It, it, it's, it's something we don't think about, but it's something that the, that the New Testament testifies of time and time again. And the Old Covenant uh, speaks of it in types and shadows all over the place. For instance, uh, Exodus 4.22, Israel is my son. Israel is my son, even my firstborn. I thought Israel was a bunch of Jews. No, no. Israel is my son, even my firstborn. And God always dealt with them as a corporate body that was giving witness in the earth of that one son. And it's the fulfillment of that today, except that now it is not a natural type and shadow of one natural seed and one natural land and one natural covenant, but it is one spiritual life dwelling in many souls. So... uh, it, it, it obviously, and I don't hear what I'm not saying, it's not that we don't have a personal relationship with God, but I think that when we emphasize that so much, it's, a, it's like it's a billion one-on-ones rather than an understanding of this corporate body that God has given, uh, God has created in the resurrection of His Son. God's view of salvation is, is, is much bigger than just a bunch of escapees. It is, it is uh, a people who have as Paul says, come to be individual partakers of one another. And, uh, and, and that's not just a Christian concept. That's not just an excuse to call someone at church brother or sister. It's bigger than that. It's actually the reality of our spiritual state of being. And I think that we as a, as a fellowship, and I was saying this earlier today in the, in the Colossians class, um, it, we as a, as a fellowship have have really just begun, I think, uh, to relate to one another in this way. And that's okay. That's, that's fine. Uh, it's, it's okay where we are. We're at the beginning of this, uh, this, this journey of, of, of coming to see as we are seen. Um, you know, relating to one another in the, in the Spirit isn't something you can just decide to do. You can't just say, I heard a message on unity last week and how we're all one in Christ, and therefore now we're all relating in the, in the Spirit and not in the flesh. No, it happens as the, as the mind is renewed, as we come to share God's view. There's no, no way you could run ahead and do it. There's no way you could hear a lesson on it and jump ahead and you know, beat God there. It's impossible. 
It has to be the outworking of his indwelling life. It has to be the result of, of, of the transformation of the soul. But nevertheless, I think, I know that we are going there. I know that we're going there. Uh, how do I know? How do I know that we can? We're heading there because it's what's real and true in the view of God. And as we grow in the truth, it will necessarily be what we become. It will necessarily be what we what we see to be true. The truth as it is in Christ must become the truth as it is in us, and it will if we continue to turn turn our hearts to Him. We're always going to be headed towards a greater realization a greater experience, a greater expression of what he has already done. That's what growing up is. See, God sees one new man. We see a bunch of people that are whatever. But as truth works in the soul, we will see each other. We will relate according to that reality. We have to. We have to because it's real. We have to because anything God is trying to do in our heart is going to bring us to a greater realization of what he already sees. Can you understand what I'm saying? If it's already real in the view of God, growing up is going to be experiencing it. Growing up is going to be knowing it. Growing up is going to be walking in it. Okay? So what he has already made us is going to become the realization and the experience of anyone who grows up in the truth. What has he already made us? He's made us one new man. And so it's not just a nice mental picture for Paul. This isn't a, this isn't a reality of, of one... Uh, it's, you know, I've said this before too but it's not many imitating one it's not many trying to be like one it's one living in the many See, it's one being the life of the many and then it becomes the many relating in the one the place of connection is no longer going to be whether or not you know I like walks on the beach and we can talk about that you know the things in the flesh, whatever. That's a weird example, but you know we're used to relating in the flesh, having to do with time, space, activities, souls, you know, natural likes and dislikes, common interest, activities. But the the place of connection is going to more and more be the person in whom we are connected, because we are one new man, because we are one new man in Him. The revealing of Christ as our life will cause us to see each other, not according to the flesh, but according to, to, to the judgment. And if you look in uh, 2 Corinthians 5.14, it says, For the love of Christ constrain, compels us or constrains us, because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. And now he is the life of all who live. So anyway, that's, uh, we'll stop there for this week. And uh, we'll... We'll pick it up or do something next week. Why don't we stand and and pray?